Blog Talk Radio. We're tackling today. We're doing. Uh, we are in our second week of a month-long series of shows talking about the crisis in family courts. Last week we talked about what do we mean by crisis, what's happening with crisis in family courts, and uh, I, I hope if you haven't caught that show, please go back to the archive and catch it. We really did a comprehensive discussion about uh, what we mean by the crisis in the family courts and how courts are being used by abusers um, to re-victimize, to gain custody, and why courts are not really being receptive to the reality of, um, of, of abusers in court. Today, we're going to be talking about the Father's Rights Movement. Now, the Father's Rights Movement sounds really good. I mean, I was, I'm happy, you know, for any women's rights movements, I'm happy to have that out there. And so when I hear Father's Rights, I'm thinking, yes, fathers should have rights. We have two guests that are going to help enlighten me about what it means in the Father's Rights Movement and why that has an impact on the family court. We have with us, well, you know what? These ladies are so outstanding that I think that they can uh, talk more appropriately than I can about their backgrounds. And um, I have with me Connie Valentine. Connie, please give us a couple sentences about your involvement when it comes to courts and uh, family court situations. Thank you, Heather. Um, I became involved in this situation years and years and years ago um, and became particularly involved when there was a case in a nearby town in which a little child kept talking about what was happening to him and was ignored by the courts and was placed repeatedly with his father, who he stated was sexually assaulting him, and who had 61 mandated reports and nine um, substantiated reports of child sex abuse. So I became um, quite shocked by that and began to work on, on the issue, and from that point on, and that was almost 20 years ago, uh, I've been committed to making sure that children are safe in family court. Okay. And you right. are also the founder of the California Protected Parents Association. And what does that nonprofit do? That sprang out of this initial case. Um, and what our mission is is to do research and education and advocacy to ensure that children are protected from incest and from family violence in the court system when a divorce or a separation is going on. Thank you. And with us also is Melissa Barnett. Uh, she's an advocate for mothers and children for about 35 years now. Melissa, welcome. And can you please tell us about some of the other work that you've done? I know that you're an author and you're an advocate for California Now, Family Court Crisis. And uh, what what are the other things that you are doing in this issue? Well, I, too, had a background, um, as Connie did, um, working, coming across children who were um, being adversely affected 
um, by mandated reports that were not being addressed in court uh, by way of some of my advocacy working for uh, CASA. I was a, uh, a volunteer coordinator, and I helped to provide the court reports to the court on behalf of the volunteer uh, volunteers working with the children when what I began to witness were the mountains of evidence that there had been um, abuse or even ongoing abuse um, and the courts were not recognizing it regardless of the volunteers um, addressing that through their court reports and as I began to discover it I've witnessed this through other advocacy that I've done, Coke Family Services in the county where I was living. And then I had my own experience where I, as a mandated reporter, was obligated to report the abuse of my own child. And I witnessed the system not only fail my child, but then fail me when the district attorneys would not follow um, protocols and uh, practices that were mandated by the state and forced the mother into a civil court proceeding to try to provide protection for herself. And it appeared that the whole system then lined up to as target practice against the mother to make the protective safe mother now um, out to be to villainize her to um, and to eventually criminalize her and separate her from the child who was reporting abuse and I witnessed that as a pattern and then I came to meet Connie Valentine in 2006 um, uh, through her work with California Protective Parents Association and many of the other advocates across the country who are beginning to become more vocal and maybe we had more opportunity through the Internet, through social media, and through our continued advocacy and reaching out to each other and networking to discover that this wasn't just a local problem or a statewide program, program, but rather a national program. And I'm quite a researcher. Many of us are as a teacher and I wanted to understand why. Why was the system lining up um, against the protective parent who was providing safety and addressing issues of abuse and not looking at the perpetrator? Okay. So now let's get to the father's rights movement. When we started the show, I said, I'm all for people having a, you know, their rights. I'm all for this. And I know a lot of men's groups, and they're wonderful men's groups, and they are, some of them are are really working hard to help eliminate domestic violence. There are some really good men's groups out there, and they all want rights. I mean, we want rights. Women want rights. So what is it about the father's rights movement that makes us cautious when we're talking about the family court system. And before I have one of one of you uh, address that issue, I want to give out our phone number. If you'd like to call in, and of course we have our chat room open as well, if you'd like to call in and uh, make a comment or uh, enlighten us or tell us about an experience that you've had, please do so. The phone number is 646-378-0439. That's 646-378-0430. 
So why do we want to address the father's rights movement when we're talking about the family court system? And I'm going to jump in there because um, uh, before I have either you, Connie, or Melissa address that issue, because when I was looking at this research and looking at this situation, it occurred to me that there was a gentleman named Richard Gardner back in the 80s and 90s who was an advocate for father's rights. And I, I don't know whether he actually started the movement or not, but he also did some really bizarre and dangerous stuff. And he was very much a presence in family courts and in trials for child custody. Um, and he came up, he was the one who came up with parental alienation um, syndrome, uh, which said that if a child didn't want to see uh, a, 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 a father, um, that it was because the mother was poisoning the child's mind. Never did he indicate that there might be a reason that a child would not want to see somebody who, for example, was hurting him. That didn't come to mind. And because of his presence in court and because of his involvement with the father's rights movement, I tend to associate father's rights movement with Richard Gardner and with some of this egregious stuff that goes on in family court. Am I right or am I wrong? Connie? Well, let me back up a minute to the father's rights okay. movement um, and then come to Richard Gardner. The father's okay. rights movement, I kind of believe, is a misnomer because I would prefer, and I often do refer to it as a batterer and molester's rights movement. The fathers, as you said, fathers are great. My gosh, we all would wish for the very best father for ourselves and our children. And there are tons of wonderful, wonderful men out there who are as appalled as we are at the fact that uh, some fathers, and it's a minority, a, a minority of, of fathers and spouses and partners, are abusive. So to me there's a separation between fathers and batterers and molesters, I'll just lump abusers' rights. So the Richard Gardner was the standard holder, the standard bearer for the abusers' rights movement in which he was covering up child sex abuse particularly, which is the really big bugaboo, child sex abuse was not even spoken of. You know, it was completely suppressed as a topic for years, decades, maybe forever. Um, it's the, the America's dirty, dirtiest little secret, really, is not the family court, it's the child sexual abuse. So when it started, when children started to speak out more and more, and the... Um, Child Abuse and Prevention Act started, which I think is in 1974. There was a there was a backlash to that because children were getting more safety and more protection. Women were beginning to get more safety and escape domestic violence situations. And there's a certain subgroup of people of men who don't who consider women and children their property, and they were not happy that the women and children were escaping. So. Richard Gardner, I believe, was a child of his uh, almost genre of men who think they own women and children. And he put forth this, you know, kind of ludicrous commentary on ma making up a syndrome, uh, which worked really, really well for pedophiles. It worked great for pedophiles. That was also during the time in the 70s when the pedophile priests were that was beginning to become part of um, 
the news reporting, just barely. Uh, and they all seem to happen together. To me, it's a way that I, I would, I, I'm going to talk about father's rights because that's the topic of our conversation. But when you hear me talk, please interpret abusers' rights, not fathers. Okay. I think I would I would go I would address also that as the um as uh, running alongside all of these social the social movements of the feminist movement of women beginning to flee uh, marriages, we say that women were going to were entering the workforce, and we had a number of then public policies that were developing, and uh, within that were these um, the dangerous fathers, as as Connie um, brings attention to, that were using the fathers movement, which was in alignment with. Um, the men's movement, which was looking for autonomy and looking for the social movement, but as women were beginning to redefine their roles in society and looking for equality rights, men were breaking away and looking at themselves. And there is some richness to that in our society, but the problem is they hope that the abusers co-opted the very positive aspects of men and fathers redefining their roles. And as one of the organizations developed, it was they developed into the National Fatherhood Initiative. And within that, they were trying to circumvent alimony and child support. And one of the ways to circumvent child support is to get full custody of the child. And so you had not just, you had the sex offenders who were using Richard Gardner's, um, you know, ridiculous um, threats, you know, um, theory, but you had, they used it as a legal strategy to remove the child from the, from the reporting mother and child, and it is now the, mo- the go-to legal strategy for any father trying to circumvent uh, child custody issues where they, you know, when, when two Um, when the two parties roll into court, men are filing for full custody who have had very little contact with their children. And they're being told by father rights lawyers to go for the money. And that's one of the biggest things is we've got a bounty on the heads of our children and we've got now funding coming through this father initiative that is fueling this war on these victims. And that's what we have to look at, is this is part and parcel a victim's rights issue. Okay, so when we're talking about father's rights, I mean, I really, I'm all for father's rights. As a matter of fact, as you pointed out, um, I think, Melissa, I want fathers to be involved in children's lives. I think it is ideal. Absolutely. When we're talking about the father's rights movement and the damage that it has done in family court, we're talking about a very tiny, tiny minority of cases, are we not? I believe uh, Dr. Daniel Saunders did a report a couple years ago for the DOJ, and I believe the statistic that he uses is 3.8%, that in child custody cases, 
where that don't necessarily go to court. Just any kind of any. There's divorce, you know, and and children have to be um, shared. Um, that it usually works out just fine. I mean, everybody's equally ha- unhappy. Everybody's equally dissatisfied. <laughs> everybody's equally satisfied. You know, I mean, that's how they say you can tell a good agreement when everybody thinks they got the raw deal. You know, that's a good agreement. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this little tiny percentage of cases, and as I said, Dr. Saunders, I believe, used 3.8% of the cases. So if you've got this, you know, six-inch line that represents the number of, of, of families that are divorced every year, you're talking about a little tiny quarter inch at the end of it. It's in that quarter inch where we have um, this kind of dispute, these custody disputes and some of these egregious custody uh, decisions. And it is that component of these cases that seem to have a high percentage of domestic violence situations. Am I right there, Connie? I would say so. Yeah. Yes, I so, agree. It's a very tiny little percent. Yeah. And I think sometimes, because um, when we're talking about it, we're, we're so dedicated to trying to eradicate the problem of, uh, you know, uh, unreasonable or unsafe decisions when it comes to custody decision, we're forgetting that the vast majority of the cases that we're talking about, it works out fine. We're talking about a little tiny percentage, and within that little tiny percentage is a huge number of these egregious cases. And I just want to make that clear. Um, The other thing that we're talking about when we're talking about the father's rights movement is we're not talking about men's movements in general. We're talking about a specific kind of of action and that that seems to be uh, bringing with it some of the the problems in custody decisions connie you identified these as uh, I, what did you say the abusers and the controllers what what did you call them instead of the father's rights movement you were calling it the i look at it as the abusers rights movement and these are okay. people who men who believe they own women and children which is of course uh, historically, the way life has been since the caveman days. Um, that well, yeah, right. You know, okay, women didn't even so, get the right to vote for a long time. So this yeah, is a very well, historical yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, I mean, I'm an older woman, and I'm I'm like what third generation of women who've been allowed to vote. You know, I mean, um, when my grandmother was born, she couldn't vote. You know, um, right. but anyway. So that's a relatively, you know, relatively, you know, I mean, globally speaking, a relatively recent uh, period in time. Nevertheless, we're talking about this father's rights movement that has come to mean a specific thing. And what that movement has come to mean is fathers trying to wrest control and custody of children away from mothers. Now, certainly we can't say that every mother is 100% perfect and wonderful and lovely. We can't say that. There are some mothers who are not good mothers. There are some fathers that are marvelous fathers. But we are talking generalizations here. We're talking about um, when we when we tend to mention the fathers' rights movement, we tend to think of this group that, as you said, Connie, are trying to just avoid paying custody or trying to maintain control over people that they think they should be able to have control over. So, okay, if we agree that when we say fathers' rights movement, we're talking about this small group of people why does it get so much traction? Why has it become so influential? Is there money behind this? Yeah, uh, yeah. there's a lot of money. 
Melissa, you want to address Go that? Go ahead, one? Melissa. Well, sure. Um, one of the things that has developed in addressing the, you know, in the in the days when we were looking at divorce and fathers leaving the family, there was actually a movement within the um, African American communities where they were looking at uh, the black fathers leaving. That was the way that they would address then the issues of poverty because there was a growing, what they saw as a growing body of evidence that began to emerge in that late 70s that demonstrated that children raised in the household where fathers, where father was absent, was the disadvantaged child relative to other children. So there you had now the growing need for this Marriage and Family Act, and you had this now fatherhood initiative that was being privately funded by big corporations, the Ford Institute and lots of different organizations to address this need of the of fathers um, being returned to the family in order to prevent poverty of children. And even today, we're seeing that this is part of the president's current agenda which is to continue the reauthorization of this same funding. And we're talking upwards of $50 billion, access to visitation funding and even second chance funding for felony offenders as they exit prison. They're offered opportunities for attorneys to get um, to go for custody, and some of them are looking for full custody so that they're now not obligated for child support. And this is when we fall into the danger zone because we, A, have no um, policies or procedures to audit these reauthorized programs to even address the issue of safety of our children. Are these fathers being returned to the in the lives of children safe? And that's and that's one of the issues that we must address as we move forward. And Barry, I I'm talked about the need for a priority um, for safety of our children in custody courts. Well, we need to address it in our funding streams as well. Are we funding programs that are um, they're constitutionally sound. Do they offer, are, are they discriminatory in any way? Can women apply for the same program that fathers apply for? Is there a second chance program for mothers who, are, who end up in jail and want to retain custody when they exit jail? And no, there are no programs currently. These are all designed for fathers. And that in itself sets up a whole set of circumstances where you pit mothers and fathers. And we incentivize in courts now choosing fathering over mothering for this very dangerous kind of funding. Okay, what do you mean by we incentivize it? Well, we... Um, if they, for one thing, mostly if we look in generalities between the incomes of mothers and, and fathers, 
we start out with, and we're only talking about this segment of the domestic violence divorce, and a, a vengeful, vindictive father who did not have primary attachment goes into court and files for full custody. And he has an attorney. 70% of the women in these cases do not have attorneys. And even when they do, they do not know how to fight this animal of the domestic violence divorce. Because when the district attorney chooses not to file issues of domestic violence reports, violence against the mother, the ongoing violence, or against the children, it forces the mother as a pro se litigant, unrepresented, to go into family court um, repeating statements of abuse. And since we have judges that are being secondarily trained to not believe the reports of abuse because all litigants lie, in family court, but in our society, we do not believe women. That's why we don't. That's why it took 50 women to stand up uh, in the media to accuse Bill Cosby before we ever believed. So okay. we experience the same. Women experience the same thing in court. And I, I think one of the most important things is when you take a child from the protective mother. She never stops fighting, and so they may give custody to the father, saying she's lying about um, lying about the abuse. They put her on supervised visitation to um, take advantage of the access to visitation funding that's flowing into the courts. The courts are required to choose, in these cases, a non-custodial and custodial parent, so they put the mother in the designation of the non-custodial parent. She goes on supervised visitation, and she keeps going back to court. And so the courts keep tapping into this money. And I'll tell you, an abuser uses the child as a way to continue to re-victimize the mother while holding the child hostage. And in another way, he's also... This is also considered witness tampering because during this time, he now has custody of the victim who is reporting abuse, and now it's what's being created is this trauma bonding. So now you have therapists (laughs) involved in this process, and the psychologists and the reports that get ordered, they all cost a lot of money. And it has become a cottage industry where you have. And we're going to talk about that uh, next. Yeah, we're going to talk about that whole cottage industry thing next week. But Connie, I I can hear people out there saying, and I actually see some on the, the chat line saying, but aren't you exaggerating this? Um, are, are we just uh, three bitter women here who are deciding that fathers are bad people? How do we know that the fathers' rights movement is doing this kind of damage? Or do we know, or are we just suspecting? How do we know this, Connie? Well, I wish I could give a definitive answer to that. The, um, I'd just like to say one thing before answering that question. Going back historically, the 
uh, aid to families with dependent children was the welfare program back when. That ensured that men were not allowed to be within the family because you couldn't get the welfare money unless you did not have a man living in your home. Created a financial incentive for women to kick the husband out or the father out and gather the money for the children. That wasn't right. So when the temporary aid assistance to needy families replaced it in the mid-90s, it switched it around so that that you didn't have to exclude the father from the family. And that, I think, was a good thing. That was a, a good replacement. But with it came the healthy marriage and responsible fatherhood money, um, which now is like $150 million a year is being seeded into states for healthy marriage, half of it, and responsible fatherhood, both of which sound great. Um, yeah. It's been warped. It's been warped because the healthy, the responsible fatherhood money, we're beginning to trace it. And Texas has done an excellent job of tracing the money. The money flow is going toward use for custody and litigation for fathers. So what Melissa was saying was exactly right on. The women who apply are turned away because they're not fathers, even though it's federal funding. And the same issue occurred in the domestic violence uh, period when people were saying, well, it's violence against women, which is the majority of the violence. But the men were saying, well, you know, I got beat up by my my partner or my spouse or my, um, you know, if they were gay, they got beat up by their their partner. Um, They wanted to use that federal money, and that was very much clarified that, yes, they could. They could be, they could tap into the violence against women money. Well, the women are not being able to tap into the uh, fatherhood money, the responsible fatherhood money. That's inequitable, and that's probably highly illegal. So that being said, um, coming back to how we know this is affecting, um, that the fatherhood is affecting the fatherhood movement, if we're, if we're going to call it that, the father's rights movement, is affecting the court cases um, one of the ways we're noticing that, which is kind of scary, is that when a professional reports child sexual abuse, let's say, let's use that as an example because that gets the most frenzied response, um, there's suddenly a whole plethora of lawsuits against that that professional. And that professional often goes out of business because they've been, they've been uh, papered to death. That doesn't happen when the child abuse report is against the mother. It only happens when the child abuse report is against the father. Now, something is causing that, and that's a, a great concern to me. There are a number of professionals who've lost their licenses because they have reported abuse. Now, that doesn't come to the family court yet. But that is, as Melissa was saying so eloquently, that's the trigger often. When child abuse is reported, suddenly everything goes berserk, and the mother innocently goes into court to say, "Would you, you know, put the father on supervised visits because my child has all these symptoms, and the reports are out that there's child sexual abuse." And as I say in this one case, there were nine substantiated reports of sexual abuse. 
everything goes haywire. And the um, fa- the father goes into court and gets custody of the child who has just reported child abuse against him. Now, that's completely counterintuitive. And the listeners who are listening are probably thinking, how could that possibly happen? Well, we've wondered that, too. We thought that was just about as bizarre a thing as we'd ever seen. Um, and we thought, okay, so our mandate is to do research, education, and advocacy. We started out with research because there is no governmental research on this phenomenon at all. It just doesn't, ha- it doesn't occur. Even though in California, Family Code, this will bore the listeners to death, Family Code 1850 Section B says that um, custody dispositions are supposed to be tracked. But that's a little vague. But when that bill was, when that law was put into place, it was to say, figure out whether kids are, who report abuse are being placed with their abusers. You know, would the government please do this? Well, the government isn't doing that. Or if they are, they aren't releasing that information. So, and that would be the judicial council that was supposed to be doing it. That's the the policy making body of this of the judiciary in Cal- in California. So we thought, well, you know, we'll do some research, and. A wonderful researcher named Geraldine Staley um, in Southern California began a research project, and we uh, put together um, 101 questions for protective parents. Because at that time, California protective parents did not realize this was a gender issue. We, in our naivete, thought that the courts were doing things wrong, and they were placing children with abusers, male and female, and that we were going to find out what was going on. That was pretty pretty far reach for us, I think. So we put out surveys and people answered them. And the, the people that answered them were 399 mothers and I think two fathers. We went to all sorts of conferences. We handed them out. It was like a, it was a sample of convenience. And so, and we looked at the, at the ones for the fathers and they were both, they both said, well, you know, I was the accused molester and I was the accused abuser and, of course, I didn't do it and, yes, it didn't matter that I had a rap sheet a mile long, uh, blah, blah, blah. So we figured they didn't really meet the qualification of protected parent. So it turned out that the protected parent survey project was only on protected mothers. And over the years, California Protected Parents Association, which has a very generic name, turns out we got maybe, we've gotten three to 4,000 contacts from people across 15 years, all from women except for 10 men. Now, that's pretty remarkable, I thought. And of those 10 men, only two or three really passed the test of being protective fathers. Uh, The rest were people who would get on the phone with me and just begin yelling at me, saying, you know, threatening me. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a protective parent to me, you know, talking about how, well, anyway. So it turns out this is a gender issue. And um, our research was quite clear about what happened, and I can go into it if you want, um, on the 399 parents from 39 different states. uh, 40% of the cases were from California. So let me know if you want me to give you some of the data. Well, I, can you just kind of synopsize what you what you found out? You said it, it, this is an, a gender issue. So what you're saying is that um, th- 
uh, abusive men are getting custody of their children. Right. Is that what you're in, saying? In in this in this sample, we had most of the mothers started out with primary custody, over 80%. And most all, all of them were domestic violence reported they were domestic violence victims. And the children started reporting abuse. They positively identified their fathers as the abusers in in three-quarters of the cases. So the mothers took the case to family court because that's the only place the mothers have to go besides the CPS and law enforcement route. Mm-hmm. That route would, you know, if CPS validated that there was a substantiated case, um, generally law enforcement did nothing. Generally law enforcement did not prosecute. In fact, 99%, I think, of the cases did not have any law enforcement prosecution or even arrest or anything, zero. They just closed the case and said there wasn't enough evidence. Well, part of the reason was was because the kids were visiting with the fathers, and that was witness tampering, as Melissa said. So as they entered the family court, the fathers pressed the case, and they entered family court, starting out with over 80% of the mothers having primary custody, nationally, it collapsed at the end of the game to 17% of the mothers had primary custody. So we figured it out um, that that was a 75% drop, three-quarters of 75% drop in custody for attempting to protect children. In California, it was far worse. It went down, it was an 85% drop in custody. So your chances in California protecting your child in family court is just very, very tiny. Um, and here are the reasons. It was very important to know the reasons this happened. But we can go into that in a minute. Okay. We have a caller right now, and I want to go to the caller, if you don't mind. Um, caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hello? It's a little loud where I am. Yes, I'm here. It's a little loud where I am, but I am here. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Can you tell me your first name and where you're calling from? Uh, name is Mercy, calling from California. Okay, thank you. Do you have a comment to share with us? Yeah, just very quickly. You know, um, the situation that I have to deal with, unfortunately, is that, um, and I won't be too long, is that, you know, I'm coming out, out of the urban experience. And as I, I, I tell people prior to me being, having to clean up this nonsense that someone else created, it, it seems that in my community, we have so much disparity for the children. And uh-huh. the person I call government daddy seems to just give people custody of children, and then the children don't come out right or productive, let me use that word. And then it's left for other people to either fix or the child ends up gravitating toward sex or a gun to fix their lack of power issue. Now, that's what I deal with on the urban experience. As far as the topic, you know, I've had to deal with a human being who's created a situation that didn't need to, didn't know anything about the child, and now, after having my bank account seized and all this type of stuff, not knowing that this child even existed, now I've had to spend five years to clean up their mess. It just seems like um, the law should be better, but what I try to tell men is that they really need to stick together and get these laws changed. Like, 
the Ohio Bill 50, uh, the former Father's Rights Bill 2312. Got to really support these bills and stop this madness because the kids. Okay, don't now stop because I'm not understanding you. I'm not understanding you. You want to stop what madness? What it, What is the issue that you're 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 talking about? I'm not sure I understand. That the custody going to a, a harmful parent. What are you talking about? I'm talking about how not 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 the custody, not not that. How one parent is pushed out and forced to financially have to fight to get back in. This doesn't benefit okay. the child. Okay. All right. Um, um, I I appreciate that 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 point that one parent is pushed out, and it seems to me that when we're talking about the fathers' rights movement. Whether rightly or wrongly, there are a group of fathers who feel that they have been pushed out. Now, Connie, I think we can argue about whether or not that's a justifiable feeling, but do you think that that statement alone might contribute to the the strength of the fathers' rights movement and and the um, um, power that they've they've garnered? Well, it could easily. Um, Although most fathers are good guys, you know they're they're good guys, and most mothers, and I'm uh, I I was divorced. Most mothers who are single mothers would absolutely die to have a really good father help them out in their um, <laughs> in their parenting. You know yeah. how nice it is to be able to work together and say, "Gosh, I need a weekend off. Thank goodness," you know this is happening, I can send little Susie over to her dad's house. And that is huge. Um, however, if little Susie is going over to dad's house and coming back, you know, with terrible problems um, and these hair-raising reports, then this is not a restful thing for mom. Or or the reverse, because there is a case that we work with that the mother kept trying to kill the boy and the father's fought like a tired to protect this child and I, I've talked to the child and he, he says yeah you know my mom has lots of problems so and he wants to live with his dad alright well I am happy to help them that is just wonderful however it usually goes the other way and um, I think that normal parents a normal father who's pushed out of his child's life if he's contributed to the child's upbringing has every right to feel upset about it but a batterer or a molester does not. They should actually say, I am so sorry to their child. They should say how wrong I was to hurt you, and I will never hurt you again. And then the child and the mother would probably invite them back in as long as that was correct. So they're, yes, being pushed out. The mothers are experiencing that now. About half of them get put on supervised visits or are removed entirely from their children's lives in the sample that we we investigated. Um, it is not a huge sample. You know, 400 people is not you're not gigantic, but it's substantial. And once we open it up to put it on the internet, it would it will grow. You know, there will be many more people who will add to it because the estimate is 58,000 kids per year are removed from a safe safe mothers and put or safe parents and put with dangerous parents 
Now that's Mercy, I'm me. getting a lot of audio uh, from you. I, uh, ambient sound is yeah. a bad connection. Do you have any other quick yeah, comments? Yeah, let me let me make this quick because uh, um, just to focus on the father's part of it, you know, because sometimes when some listeners hear abuse, rape, things of that nature, they kind of, for some odd reason, signal that toward the fathers only. The fathers, the fathers' right movement is signified in this one legal precedent: naturalizing people. You can't naturalize a lady, unfortunately but you can naturalize a, a male. And here, here's the strength of why father's rights are so important. If you're a young lady and you go to the government to get WIC, and now this might not be in your culture experience, but this is in mine, ideal and urban experience. So a lady goes to get WIC. She has to put down some name. The government will go after that name many times without even checking. Yeah. So well, I don't think that's necessarily have, just an urban experience. I think that's just a, a general, uh, a, a general situation. Absolutely. No, no, I, I understand. I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't saying that, that that it was not. I'm saying in oh, okay. urban experience, right. this happens more than not. As, as your as your guest basically said, which is very honorable on her part, she was saying that if a father was helping, that would be a great thing. In the urban experience, it has nothing to do whether the gentleman is helping or not. It has to do with a person who wants power over the child. He can be the greatest, stable individual on the planet. It doesn't mean anything in the urban experience, and that's why I'm uh-huh. separating the two. In, in the professional experience, it may be honored and appreciated. So here's my point about naturalizing real quick, is that when you're able to say Tom is the father, and the government sends a million-dollar lawyer after this person, seizes his bank account or whatever extraneous things they do, without even checking to see if this person is really the child's father. And even in many cases, when you go look up naturalizing on YouTube or something, you'll find many males who the government knows full well they are not the blood father. But because they were not able to get enough money to fight the government on a case, they are now the documented father, which is a new term in legalese. This is yeah. the strength of the father's rights movement because these things are so unfair toward the males only that something like that, you would never be able to naturalize a lady and go make that accusation. So that's Well, that's I think where you make a good unfair. point. I think you make a good point, Mercy, and I'm going to hang up now because, as I said, the connection is not so good. I'm getting a lot of, of uh, sound here. So I'm going to let you go. I thank you for your comments, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that because I think you're making a good point. So thank you for your call, Mercy. Um, Melissa or Connie, do, uh, he's making yeah. a good point, which is the oh, point absolutely. that you've been making, which is, you know, you try and fight these things, and if you don't have the money to pay for attorneys, you know, forget it. And so it's conceivable that a lot of the the men, a lot of the people who are involved in the fathers' rights movement, are thinking that they are trying to strive for fairness for an underrepresented group. Um, does that is that been your experience at all, Melissa? Oh yes, I and I can appreciate what your caller um, was addressing when we talk about this best interest standard and we apply it to children. What what we're really um, experiencing is the best interest of the state, and that is ah. that the child represents a considerable amount of money. 
We sign over a contract at birth between the child and the state. And the state now has the right to fight for that child. So when a mother, let's say the mother, we don't have to naturalize the mother because we know who the birth mother is. Mother gives birth to the child. We now have to do, and the fathers could fight this on paternity, take a lot of work to fight this paternity issue. And the state is going to go after the money. They are looking for as many federal dollars as possible. And that's why the children are very are used as a cash register right now. And it's not it, it's of no concern the trauma that the child is going through. And as another mom um referred to, the state is obligated not only to the best interest of the child, but the mother and the father as well. And in the prosecution of either the mother and father they destroy the family economics in order to go after whatever federal money they can. And that is really we're talking about a revolution for families is how do we not traumatize family any further when they're going through divorce because divorce itself is already a traumatic experience dividing up of the families. And you're now creating two separate families that the state is obligated to acknowledge but because because of the inherent problems in equality rights mothers do not have rights under the constitution to be provided due process when they go to court and we have oh, all wow. these federal yeah. That's that's kind of a sweeping statement. Mothers, well, neither do fathers, really. I mean, well, mothers yeah, because and fathers they're going to go not... after their they're going to go after their pocketbooks. Men are, you know, this whole fatherhood initiative basically is a chapter within the patriarchal rule book. We have we have courts of equity. So when mothers and fathers go to court to go divorce, women are still considered property of men. They were in the father's home. They were they were under the umbrella of rights of their own fathers. And when they marry, they're under the umbrella of rights of their husband. But when they divorce or bifurcate, they now do not have equal rights in a court of law. And okay. so, well, I'm not prepared to yeah. dis- to discuss that particular thing. I'm looking at the clock, and I, I hate to rush you, um, Melissa, but I do have one more caller here, and I'd like to try and get him in. Um, and so, uh, caller, are you there? Caller, are you there? Up. Oh. I guess we missed him. Um, so, okay, well, um, I think that we're, you know, I mean, this this whole topic is so huge. Um, and what I'm trying to do with this show is to really get a handle on Father's Rights Movement. It's a specific movement. It's a, It has a specific name. You can Google it, right? And, right. Connie, I think, I, yeah, I think that, that the point that we've been making is that not all men's movements, not all men's rights groups, are the same as this father's rights movement. And that when when we're talking father's rights movement, the father's rights movement, we're talking about, at least historically, a group of of men that are trying to reestablish control or reestablish rights, at least according to Connie, right? 
Absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. Oh, and I'm trying to make it clear. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to make it clear to the listeners that we're not trying to sweep all men's rights groups with this brush. We're talking specifically about the fathers' rights movement. One of the things that we didn't talk about so specifically is, and we kind of started out that way, and I'd like to wrap up with it, is why do the courts take this so seriously? Melissa, you were just uh, uh, making, you know, making a point that the courts take it seriously because the courts, uh, in, in your opinion, uh, weigh the husband's rights more substantially. Is that the point that you were trying to make? Yeah, I think I think that we have established that fathers um, are that there was a period of time when fathers may not have had the opportunity for. Um, parental rights, and so there's been a sweeping movement like a pendulum swing to consider not only the rights of fathers, but when a father is so um, is displaying in a court their desire for um, for their parental rights, the courts are incentivized with funds, but are also presented with what appears to be a very interested and concerned father, and our society has really swung to not only protecting the rights of fathers, but really choosing fathering over mothering. And if mother doesn't have the same kind of protection of rights under our laws and in the area of funding to protect her um, her parental rights, then we have a real problem in our society right now uh, where, you know, we have, basically we have a gap in our system, especially for the victim of violence, the domestic violence victim, where the domestic violence industry fails at the door of the family court. They wipe, they wash their hands of that victim. And as most advocates know, the most dangerous time for mothers and children is when she leaves. And that's the gap that we have right now. And so, and it's just, it runs parallel to very good dads also who want to play a bigger role in their children's lives. And some of them may be fighting. Um, but they are co-opted by very dangerous men and a very dangerous system that the Southern Poverty Law Center calls hate groups. They've identified um, several members of these organizations as um, as terrorists, basically, who are continuing to terrorize um, women and children and using the courts to do so. Connie, um, when you're talking about fathers' rights and when, when you're looking at it through the eyes of your um, uh, Protective Parent Association, what do you think is the future? What What do you think that the courts need to do to address not only fathers' rights but also mothers' rights and, more specifically, children's rights? One of the things that I have such a hard time understanding about the courts is that even though supposedly many courts use the standard of the um, uh, best, you know, the, the what's best for the child and the best interests of the child, the fact is that so many times in this 3.8% of the cases that we are talking about, um, the child's interests seem to be uh, secondary to something else. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and can you spend a couple minutes talking about that? I am so glad you asked that question. 
that's just a <laughs> wonderful question um, because it strikes right at the heart of what our organization is trying to do. The way the laws are set up right now, um, or the lack thereof, is that people in family court don't get attorneys. And when it comes down to push comes to shove, the richer person wins, the more wealthy person wins, even if they're not wealthy by much. Um, Our research showed that 98% of the mothers did not have an attorney when the fathers did have an attorney because the batterers are often the heavy earners and they keep, you know, the women and children at home and the mother's supposed to raise her children. So they're at an economic disadvantage. Second, at least in our state, California, there's no requirement for a court reporter to be there. So a hearing can go on and it's as if nothing happened because there's nothing on record. That is a due, those are both incredible due process issues. And that they apply to men and women. It's an equal opportunity due process violation. And the third thing is, is a couple is a couple until they have a child, at which point they're a family. The children have no voice in family court, even though it's, quote, family court. That's what our push has been, to bring the child's voice into not muffled, not through the evaluator, not through the recommending counselor, not through the law, not through any filtered way because they all get distorted. It's like a game of telephone that we used to play as kids. But just directly to the judge or the commissioner to say, as as we have in our law, to say, here's what I would like, Mr. Judge. I would like to have my life go this way. They wouldn't be talking about abuse. They wouldn't be talking about anything. It's just what their wishes are get to be heard. So right now in California, thanks to a wonderful assembly member, Fiona Ma, we have age 14 in which if a child wants to speak to the court, the child can speak to the court. We're trying to lower that age so that a child who wants to speak to the court at age 7 or 10 could do that so that the court, the judge, could hear the child's little voice. And when that's happened, it's been enormously persuasive. In fact, in the Hague Convention, which are giant international cases, children as young as 8 and even younger are allowed to speak to the court, and if they object to the place that they're being sent to, that can sway the the court. The court can say, oh, we think the child's habitual residence ought to be here, but the child doesn't want to go, and that can sway the entire thing. We have a bunch of cases that show that the child's voice was very important to the court. Very good. Thank you so much, Connie. Thank you. Uh, We are running out of time. This has been a really complex uh, topic. I thank my callers, and I'm so sorry I missed you one caller. Uh, I would have loved to have heard what you had to say. Um, Complex issue. Uh, Complex issue. Um, Fathers' rights are, in fact, important. The Fathers' rights movement may be something different that we should talk about again. Um, I do end the show with a quote, and today's quote is uh, from um, Unknown. The concept of father's rights should be thrown out the door. It should be called children's rights and parents' responsibilities. And I think we can all agree to that. Please join us next week in our third week of talking about the family courts and family court crisis. We're going to have Richard Ducote and possibly Dr. Daniel Saunders, and they are going to be talking about that whole cottage industry that has sprung up around divorce courts and family courts. Again, thank you for joining us, and join us again women.